Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. We're into season two. This is episode 72 of Obsessed with Design. And today I catch up with Chris Doe. Chris is not only the founder and CEO of brand strategy and design consultancy, Blind, but this guy is a content producing machine. Now, I'll tell you a little bit more about this on the episode, how I met Chris and how we got connected, but I was just so impressed with all of the things he has going on, and I hope you find this inspirational. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the many talented Chris Doe. Okay, guys, welcome all the way from Santa Monica, California, Chris Doe. Chris is the founder and CEO of brand strategy design consultancy, Blind. Founded in 1995, Blind is a pioneer of motion design. Today, Blind continues in the tradition of excellence by bringing a world-class team of strategists, designers, filmmakers, writers, and animators to create truly memorable video content. So Chris, I'm excited to chat with you today about your story. Um, Of course, your podcast, The Future and Blind. Um, And actually I had found you uh, because a longtime uh, consultant friend of ours, Blair Enns had tweeted about his, uh, his episode on your podcast. So I would consider Blair a huge influence in my uh, professional and business career. So anybody that Blair was uh, willing to recommend on the Twitters, that's, uh, that's somebody I want to check out. So welcome to Obsessed with Design. Thanks for having me, Josh. Uh, we have many things in common and Blair is definitely a source of inspiration and influence in my life as well. That's awesome. And I've uh, since then started digging into some more episodes. And um, so we'll get back to the podcast here in a second. But for anybody that wants to add some more great design oriented uh, conversations to their podcast list, the future is is really a well done show and the production value is awesome. I just think it's it's a really good, um, really good podcast. podcast out there. So maybe before we dig into that a little bit further, um, I always love to ask my guests, you know, how did you find yourself in this design world? You know, what's, what's your origin story? Oh, okay. Great. Happy to share it with you. I think growing up, um, there, there was a, an internal conflict in my mind in terms of what I wanted my, my heart's desire, if you will, and my external logical brain thinking, I need to do something that's practical something that is going to sustain me for a while in in terms of a career choice. And so, although I love drawing and making things and I exhibit this from my earliest childhood memories from, from drawing with markers and just building stuff, finding stuff that people would throw away in the streets and just picking things up and reassembling them into other things. But I always thought that that was a hobby and it was something to do for fun. And I, I developed a little bit of a reputation amongst my classmates in grade school that, oh, he's the guy who can draw anything. And I wasn't really that good. I was just better than them. And that is how it kind of lived inside my body for a long time. And I remember distinctly one of my uh, uncles, quote unquote, which was basically my mom's coworker, a family friend who would come by to mentor my older brother. He He would prod me and say, you know, you can go into a career in design and you're really good at this art thing. You should really pursue that. And I smiled at him thinking, you know, that's cool, but I dismissed it. 
I dismissed it because of very practical reasons. Like I, I thought I was supposed to become an engineer of some kind, uh, maybe in the software space. I'm not sure. And that's what my brother was doing. So it wasn't until I got a job working at a silk screening shop uh, that I started to see and meet people who were actual working professional creative people. And my, my task was fairly straightforward at this shop. I was working directly under the boss. His name was Brad. And he would just have me ink over his pencil drawings. And mm. he did the design work himself. And this was right around the late 80s, I think. Mm -hmm. So the Mac wasn't like this gigantic accepted thing yet. And it was very expensive. And so I was just hand inking his work. And that's when I got to meet a graphic designer who was doing desktop design work. And that's when it materialized for me. That's when it became real. When I met this other person, his name is Dean Walker. When I met Dean, the idea that I could actually earn a living, not a great one, but at least I wouldn't be uh, in the street and homeless, which was always my fear, is I actually can do this thing. And that's when I decided, you know what, I, I want to become a designer. So how did that, um, obviously some time probably transpired between the realization that you wanted to be a designer and, and from, find, from founding Blind. So what that path look like for you? Yeah, that was... Uh, it was a pretty straight path, I think. Um, having realized this late in high school, I, I think I was a senior at that time, and deciding now I want to do design. Well, my GPA wasn't great enough to or good enough to get into the schools that I wanted to, so I had to go uh, to the route of um, community college. And I went to San Diego City College for a year, worked on my portfolio, got into Art Center, and was set on a path. The minute I found what I think my calling was, it set me on a path and I became laser focused. Before then, I was just like everybody else, waffling about trying to figure out my place in the world, not knowing what my strengths and weaknesses were, mostly just trying to fit in, if I'm being honest. And once I found design and I found that it's something that turned me on and I got excited about doing it and I was excited to stay up late working on projects and putting in that extra effort, giving that the theoretical, uh, you know, 110%, if you will. And I got rewarded for it each time because the work that I did was met with praise from my instructors or my classmates. I got into Art Center, spent about four years there, graduated, and worked for a brief period of time, and then started the company in 1995. So it wasn't a long professional career working for people before I decided to rather carelessly just launch and start my own company. Well, maybe we can come back to the start of Blind here in a second, but I'm kind of curious how your team is shaped today. Tell us a little bit about the, the structure and size of Blind. Okay, I think we're around 14 or 15 people, and it, and it swings between the mix of creative people and what I would consider non-creative people in a sense that there are administrators, producers, salespeople, mm -hmm. uh, accounting, that kind of stuff. And I think we're around 13 to 15 people, and... Right now, the way it's structured, are there are essentially three leads. Two of them, uh, they have the title of creative director. They essentially produce, design, win new business, and manage all the projects that we get from a creative service side. And the other person, he's our digital director. And so he's leading, instead of the commercial or print work, he's leading all the digital projects. So anything that's web-related, anything that's deep in strategy, he's going to be running that. And so those three guys are basically running the company for me. 
And then we have an executive producer, um, a producer, and a bunch of designers and a couple of support people. So I'm curious about, you know, as you guys describe yourself as a brand strategy and design consultancy, um, and I also see that, at least from from my impression, that, that motion seems to be a really essential piece of what you do. So maybe talk us through a little bit of your philosophy and how that sets you apart. Sure. The motion stuff that you're seeing on our site is part of the legacy of who we are. And we have roughly about 22 years worth of motion design experience doing commercials, show packages and identities, things of that nature. It's not until the last three or four years that we started to delve into brand strategy and working with the C-suite, you know, the CEO, the CMO, the CRO, basically everybody with the C title in front of them. And then we realized that we needed to have different skills. The commercial work that we were doing, basically the ad agency would give us a script. Sometimes they'd give us boards and we would be the production arm of that. So we were going to embellish the idea and take it across the finish line. But when you're working with clients directly, there is no agency as a buffer. And in between, then you need to learn to speak the language mm -hmm. of business and understand what the business goals are. Is it a marketing issue? Is it a positioning problem? Uh, why do they need to redo their website? What's, what's missing from it? And so we had to learn new skills to adapt to this new paradigm that we're in. And this is the migration that we're making away from being a motion-led company into more of a brand strategy consultancy company. How have you found that um, that your job has shifted or, or are you still doing really similar things to, um, to when you founded it? So as a CEO, I would imagine your, your duties are maybe not always design specifically. So talk us through kind of what, what maybe an average day or week looks like for you. Sure. And I'm not trying to be overly complicated when I give you this answer, but I have to answer it in two parts because I have two very different roles mm -hmm. from the blind, the strategy and the creative service company. My role mostly is onboarding new clients and doing the strategy parts. And then once the strategy work is done and we do this through discovery, when we meet with people, there's a lot of sticky notes and whiteboard a lot of conversation that's happening. So basically my my main value that I contribute in that is dialogue, asking questions, listening, and connecting dots for my clients with my client. Mm -hmm. And once that part is done, I pretty much hand it over to the creative team to then give the ideas form. And one of the project leads will run it. And it's very rare that I'm going to actually get my hands in the work. My, my hands don't get quote unquote dirty anymore. In, in that I, I am not sitting on the box trying to design the logo, the mark, or anything like that. If my hands touch the mouse, it's mostly because I'm helping a designer overcome a particular design problem. Mm -hmm. And I'll look at the files, I'll zoom in, and I'll look at it, and we'll, we'll shape it together. But it's only in an art direction, creative production capacity, and not in the, I have time to make it. And so that role has evolved. And it, I'm not saying that I've been doing that kind of work forever, but it's been kind of since the beginning where new work would come in. And I always felt like, you know what, I'd rather bring in people who are as good, if not better than me to work on the projects so I can go and continue to do what it is that I'm doing. And most of the time, I think what I'm doing in my role is to make sure we're hitting some kind of uh, creative benchmark. And now it's become a strategic benchmark. 
And sometimes designers, they get lost in the work themselves. As creative people, we get carried away by our passion to do things. And we're inspired by something we saw earlier that day or last week. And we kind of put it in our mental back shelf or whatever, and mm-hmm. we pull it out. And so oftentimes I look at the work. It's beautiful. There's no debate about that from, from my point of view, but it's totally off brand. And I have to kind of redirect and say, you know, this is the world that this brand lives in. This is really cool. Let's save that for something else because I'm not seeing how it ties into what it is we're doing. So if anything, I'm course correcting and sometimes it's minor adjustments and sometimes it's major adjustments. Now, the second part to the question uh, that you're asking is, well, what is this other thing that I'm doing? Most of my energy today is spent on running, writing, producing, editing, supervising, and scheduling uh, content for our channel. And our channel exists in many places, and there's many facets to this thing. It's like an eight-headed snake or whatever, okay? So we exist on YouTube. We have something like 125,000 followers or subscribers there. And we also produce and create content on our multiple Facebook pages. And they're all segmented by the kinds of content that our audience is looking for. So I have a business page, which is really about the business of design. So if you want to bone up on your business chops and learn about how to market, to position yourself, to understand user needs and design thinking, I have a Facebook page dedicated just for that. And then there's a whole group of people that I'm helping to coach and to teach more about the design fundamentals. And that's a different page. So there's lots of things that we're doing. And the reason why we have a podcast and maybe the way you and I are now talking is because people on YouTube would ask, can you just port this content over onto a podcast format? Because sometimes I'm driving and you know, you don't want to be streaming videos through YouTube while you're driving. That doesn't make any sense. Or sometimes I'm driving, I don't, I'm running on a treadmill or something like that. So we started to produce content for podcasts. And I'm the kind of guy who likes to think, you know, you have to speak the native language on the platform that you're on. You can't just Mm -hmm. lazily port stuff over, you know, podcasts don't work well on YouTube and YouTube content because it should be visual. Uh, You're not always describing things that you need to when somebody's only listening to you. And the conversation is a lot more intimate. You're in somebody's head or in their car or in their home. It's very different than something that's on a screen somewhere. And so then we had to learn, how do we have these conversations and tailor the content specifically for podcasting? And that's what we've done. So now we have multiple podcast episodes that only live there, things that happen on YouTube that only live there, and things that happen on Facebook and Twitter, uh, because the conversation is more real-time and it's more intimate. So... Talk me through a little bit of your, um, I mean, first of all, that sounds like a ton of content (laughs) and as, as a fellow podcaster, I can appreciate how much work goes into, you know, just one of those channels. So talk me through a little bit about maybe your, your business strategy or your goals for, for doing each of those and kind of having a, you know, almost a unique audience and flavor for each of them. Right. So let me see if I can, um, processes. So the business strategy, and we have what we call our like a global business objective. And we have two things for, um, from the content side for the future. Our global business objective is to get to 200,000 subs on YouTube. That's a pretty straightforward thing. It means that we have to, at this point, average about 400 new subs a day. 
And we're on track to doing that. And theoretically, it's not a linear growth. It's an exponential growth. Mm-hmm. The more subs you have, the more subs you get. And so we're on track there. And the other goal is a revenue goal, which is to hit about $250,000 in revenue by the end of the year. And we're on track to do that because every month now we are breaking and smashing past the previous high water mark of what can we do in a month. So this is, I don't know how, how long this can be sustained, but we're doing about $1,000 a day that's being generated as passive income from the content from the future. And that is and it's only um, growing. advertisers or that's um, no. YouTube views or what, what's, what's No, the money out? is coming in from a couple different ways. And it's, it's like a, you have a lot of buckets collecting rain, right? So mm-hmm. the, the main way that we make money is we produce kits. And the kits are a collection of PDF documents, templates, and sometimes uh, they're, they're grouped with videos. And so people buy that. So our most expensive kit is $489. And there's three such kits. And our least expensive product, I think, is something called, it's called AIB. I know what it's called, Agency in a Box. And it's $99. Mm-hmm. And we're going to try to come up with like lower price points. But those are things that people buy. And you can think of them as glorified uh, PDF books. Okay. Sure. But they're very specific. They're designed to help you solve a very real problem. And they're very actionable. And there are not a lot of words. Okay. So we're teaching people how to do what it is that we do. Mm, We have courses. And that's not any different than any other courses you've seen. They're video-based. And there's some documents and some homework, that kind of stuff. We sell those too. And other ways that we make money is people just give us money, believe it or not. Hmm. So when we're on YouTube, there's, there's a, something called a super chat function and people donate. And so when initially we we're doing it, we turn on the function without any kind of announcement or prompting, people just started to donate. And it's it's funny because, okay, the super chat window popped up. So we're going to answer your question. And there was no question. The question was, we love you. Keep doing what you're doing. Hmm. And that really kind of warmed my heart, I have to say, because that was really about reciprocity and that they felt that we've given them so much value that now they feel compelled to do this. And it's just a wonderful feeling. And and the amount of money has ranged from a dollar to a hundred dollars per person to donate. Oh, that's awesome. Now people are starting to donate just on our site without an episode just to say thank you. <laughs> so this is how we're, awesome. we're, we're winning. Yeah. And the last way that we make money is through coaching and membership. So we have a private Facebook group. It's for entrepreneurs. It's about 160 people. They pay 75 bucks a month to be in that group and to get access to one call a week with me in terms of a a webinar. And they get to meet these other wonderful people from all over the world doing different things. And it's pretty awesome to see. I feel like a very proud parent there because there are natural collaborations that are happening between these people. And so they're starting to work together so that they can fill gaps that they don't currently offer. And that's a wonderful thing for me to see. Well, like you said, I think the, um, you know, there's something about a self-fulfilling audience when, when your audience grows, it's just going to grow exponentially that people are going to refer and tell their friends and, and share that. But maybe on the, on the less organic side, how did you get that audience sort of coming there in the first place? Or, um, where did you find, success in marketing your, your content, your products? Originally, the channel was started by my former partner, Jose Caballer, and he used YouTube essentially to teach people, but there, there was 
an ulterior motive. And the ulterior motive was to bring awareness to our products and to create demand for them. And so a lot of the content was really kind of info, but there was a commercial aspect to it. And we would do that. And there's only so many ways you can sit there and promote your product, right? And at some point, I just said, you know what? Let me try to do this a different way. Let's not try to sell anything. Let's just educate people on whatever we think the hot topic of the day is. And so we would start to produce episodes and we would do one a month and then it became two a month. And it didn't really get a whole lot of traction. I think at that point we were at 1,300 subscribers. That was the audience you already built. And you can get to 1,000 or 1,300 pretty quickly mm -hmm. if you produce a few videos that are good. And to grow past that, I think you have to start to think about what's my strategy? How can I deliver this content? And being a guy in motion now, so this is where my expertise in motion design and telling stories through video, mm -hmm. this came to play because not only do we have all the equipment, the lights, but we also knew how to edit and tell stories. So I sat down, worked on what I think was our our biggest hit at that point in time. It's the first ever episode where I wrote and produced. The other ones were just us talking on camera, just me getting comfortable with the idea of being on camera mm -hmm. and being transparent with what it is that we were doing. So this episode was called Branding and Identity Design. So it was a case study on one of the projects we were working on for this fishing lodge called Ole's. And what I did was instead of just showing the work like I'm self-promotional, I broke it down. I talked about what is a brand, this is a logo, and this is a brand, and we, we got into it. And we started to teach people our process. And that video started to go crazy relative to the other videos. Mm -hmm. And today, to date, I think it has a couple hundred thousand views. I'm not sure if it's cracked 300 yet, but it, it's getting up there. Mm, that's awesome. Right. And then we saw a lift. And that was like this high. This was um, addictive to me because I was looking at it like, wow, I put in some effort and the results were more than what I expected. And so, at that point in time, I was commenting in the channel saying, my God, let's celebrate when this hits 5,000 views, because that would be major to me. Mm -hmm. With an audience of 1,300, 5,000 views, that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. And so we would sit there and make content and see what it did in terms of how it performed. And we started to craft different kinds of episodes and refined our whole approach and process so that once every other month, once a month, two times, now we're doing like three sometimes four episodes a week. Mm, that's awesome. So it is a lot of content. So I have friends who have been there with me. Uh, when I say friends, I mean like internet people that I met <laughs> that I talk to now online and offline where they're like, wow, man, it's just, I love all the stuff you're doing. It's just, it's hard for me to keep up with you. Like, when do you sleep? Because <laughs> I'm trying to listen to the podcast and then you, I see you're doing a live stream. Like what? I can't keep up. And it's because the team has grown. <laughs> like we have a full-time editor now working specifically just for content, right? And I have a full-time shooter editor. We, we've just hired our first full-time designer who she'll be starting in a couple of weeks. And I'm working with a writer who's coming in to work with me part-time because I need help making content. That's a pretty awesome, uh, awesome problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, the idea is, can we be a company of 15 content creators and not in zero service providers that the only thing that we're doing as a company is to make content to help teach people whatever it is that they need help with. So, you know, it's not often that we can 
share a, a real project with people because there are sensitivities with our clients, non-disclosure agreements we sign, and they don't want all their stuff aired, right? And how do we go around that? And this was by accident almost. One of the guys, he's full-time with me now, his name is Aaron. He said, Chris, we produce this content and it's cool, but I love watching you walk around the office and people stiffen up a little bit as you walk by and then you make some comments and then they nod their head and they, they get what you're talking about. I want to film that. So he kept asking me, can we film that? Can we film that? And it was just like, this is weird, dude. We, we shoot in the studio. <laughs> the, the two companies are walled off literally by two walls in a hallway. Okay. And I was like, you know what? Is there anything? Well, it just turned out that my one of my designers, she was working on a, a magazine concept that I wanted to have for the future. And she had done so many designs and they were all pretty incredible. And I'd sit down and I would chat with her and I'd give her a critique. And the next, next couple of days, she would come back with 10 times more work. And so I said to her, we're going to film this. So I called Aaron over and said, let's film it. You won't, you've been wanting to do this. Let's do it. So I sat down next to her and I gave her a typography crit. And that video is performing really well for us now too. I think it's getting close to 100,000 views. Maybe it's a little over now. I, I can't remember. Mm. But it was really about me just doing what I normally do, which is to provide direction and recalibration for somebody. And people on the internet are saying that one video they learn more about design and typography than in four years of university. That's awesome. So that's that's kind of like the path we're heading down. Man, I'm going to have to track down that video because that sounds awesome. And uh, you guys are just tackling some of the things that, and maybe I'm not the only one, but some of the things that we've we've thought about or talked about doing. And it's it's so cool that you've obviously got the talent in house that you guys get a wild hair and decide to to film a critique, <laughs> you yeah. just bring the, bring the crew over and do it. So that's, that's fantastic. There's something here I want to share with you if I may. Yeah. 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 Uh, here's the concept is that my business coach who I've been working with for over 10 years now, and he told me, you know, it's, it's sometimes it, you don't realize what you're doing is special. It's your normal, it's your reality. So you just assume everybody else is doing the exact same thing. And he was making this comment uh, as part of like, when you walk through our building, our office, mm -hmm. we don't put up any of our work. So he was saying, you know, what do you guys, are you guys a hair salon or a spa? What do, what do you guys even do here? <laughs> and I, I kind of felt a little sheepish about it because I thought, you know, being very self-conscious about it. I don't know if I want to put up our work. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Like we're tooting or touting our own horn a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. He goes, well, why don't you try it? So I like a lot of the advice he gives me. I don't understand it at first, but I just go for it. It's like, yeah, whatever. So we put up these things and then our clients come in and they look at the work like, I didn't know you did that or that video mm -hmm. or that commercial. And then there's a whole dialogue and it sparks interest in other things that we're doing. So we don't realize that what we're doing is special at all until a stranger comes into the room. Sometimes it's your parent, a friend, mm -hmm. or somebody who doesn't know anything about what you're doing. And they say, they look at it like, this is magic. Design is magic. Creativity is magic. <laughs> and so why am I telling you this story? The reason why I'm telling you this story is this, is because I sit down with men at work and we have all these designers at our office that I'm just used to working with. Either they started out as a student of mine or an intern that became an employee. So I just assumed this is the way it works. And so when I sat down with her and filmed this thing, look, I, I wasn't sure it was any good. 
I wasn't sure anybody would be interested in looking at this thing. Mm -hmm. And then it starts to go crazy. And then people are saying, wow, this is so helpful to me. Will you make more? And it wasn't really on the editorial calendar for me to do more of these art direction critiques. But the thing that really caught me was people were saying, like, how long did she have to work on this? Because it looked like she was doing hundreds of designs and she was. And I said a couple of weeks mm -hmm. and they were, the Internet was just like blown away because they're used to working on like a layout for a week and a half where men would do five new layouts for me in a night. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, she's like the, her new nickname is like the Terminator because she's coming up with all <laughs> these designs and they're just flabbergasted that she can do this kind of work. They think that she's working there all night. And I said, I assure you, men goes home at seven o'clock every day. We start at 10, we go home at seven and this is how we do it. It's just, you guys are not used to the pace in which we're comfortable with working at. Yeah. The rigor. So that's, I wanted to share that with you. I love that story. I love the simplicity of the advice. Why don't you try it? And it's just like, <laughs> I think you could answer just about any question with that, with that piece of advice. Yeah. Now his whole thing is, he's like, you know, Chris, I've been uh, coaching people for many, many years. And the problem is this, I would be out of a job if I told somebody to do something and they just did it. The, the thing exactly. is you have to help people through that resistance, the, the, the pain point of change and the idea that your world is going to be up, turned upside down for a little while. Well, one of the reasons why I think I've done so well with my business coach and achieve things that other people haven't been able to do is because I'm just willing to try. He would say, go do this. And sometimes your initial reaction is that's cheesy. That's stupid. That'll never work. Or I don't understand it. Like explain more. I'm just like, okay, let's just do it. I'm not attached to anything that I've done before. What I am attached to is results. So if mm -hmm. I don't like what's going on now, I'm willing to do just about anything to see if the results would be different. Change the input and the output might be different. That, um, that sounds like I'm interviewing myself. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of recently came to the, the realization that, um, I am both type A, which I went through most of my, uh, my adult life, not realizing that I fit this category because I never saw myself as like a morning person. So I was like, oh no, type A's are crazy morning people. Um, and this whole idea of, you know, I sort of jokingly say optimistic to a fault, but my, my personal flavor of optimism is I know we're going to get there. And if I have to change it a hundred times to find the solution, like that's, that's just my flavor of, of optimism is we'll, we'll try whatever just to get it to, to the finish line. Right. I think people fall in love with their own process and their own ideas. And what I would suggest is to fall in love with the results more. Mm, yeah, that's great advice as well. So let's um, shift gears ever so slightly. I know you still do some client work, so I'm curious. Yeah, we do. We do. I mean, I don't want to lie to you. Okay. We do a lot of client work. I just, me personally, I'm not as involved in that. So the company, uh, the only way we're able to do what we do and the volume of work that we're able to do is because blind right now makes it possible by doing work that's generated for real people that pay us real money. Well, what do you define as a great client and where do you feel like your best clients have come from or what, what has generated those best relationships? Oh, okay. I can, I can answer this one pretty succinctly. I think great clients to me 
love the work that you do and can afford the work that you do. Mm-hmm. And and that is kind of just in, in a nutshell. And they are clear in their mission and they know what they don't know. And so they're able to step aside and to bring in an expert and say, you know, I need help solving this problem. And when they hear an idea that's good, even though it's not their own, they can grab onto that. And I love that. And I love working with business oriented people because they don't get fickle into like, is that the right shade of persimmon? You know, that is um, a frustrated designer it trapped inside a business person's body. Mm-hmm. And when you have overlapping skill sets, that makes for a lot of conflict and, and friction. And I don't like that. So my best clients have been business people, marketing, salespeople, whatever, because they, they, they know what they know and then they get out of the way for the rest of the stuff. So I've had clients now who have called me up on a Friday night just to thank me and to appreciate the work that we're doing and to then reciprocate by saying, you know what, uh, I'm going to give you some more shares in our company. Mm. This is just unprompted. And, and I love that. Or they go out of their way. And I'm thinking of one client in particular to introduce us to more clients and to strong arm those clients into working with us. That is an advocate for you. And this is a healthy relationship because that only means that, my God, I have to go and, and really hit it out of the park for you the next time you call. And I'm willing to do just about anything for that kind of client. Now, I can say uh, that I have maybe a handful, maybe it's approaching two handfuls now of clients that are like that, where they just trust you to that level. And I understand it takes time to build trust. Sometimes it happens quickly. And we have another client now that represents about 25% of our billings annually just from one client. And that's a dangerous place to be in. That's Mm. like too much from one client. But we love that. Usually their opening um, statement to us is, this is your job uh, unless you don't want it. We're not talking to anybody else. Man, that is like the the magical place to be. And I, Isn't it? I would definitely um, agree. We, we have maybe the one handful of, of those guys who are the ones who say, we're asking you first, as long as you can, you know, work within budget and timeline, it's yours. Just let's talk through if this is a good fit. Right. So maybe thinking through, um, and maybe it's been a while since you guys have, have experienced this, but you know, I, I think we've all had rough spots or, uh, maybe a, a project that didn't go well. Yep. What were some of the the red flags or things that you watch out for in the future or maybe unpack one of those stories for us? There's, there's two things in terms of these rough patches and, and everybody has them. And sometimes it's because you you underestimated the challenge of the job or you overestimated your skill level. And then the other part is there are some just really bad clients out there and it's got nothing to do with what you do. Mm-hmm. And which one were you thinking of when you asked that question? I'm happy for you to go either direction. Okay. Um, so let me, let me take you down the path of the bad client. And, and this is just going to get everybody's blood boiling, right? Because we've all had clients like <laughs> right. this. So what is a bad client? A bad client to me uh, is indecisive and, and is easily influenced by the opinions of other people, except for the one opinion that they should be seeking, which is yours. They'll, they'll ask their, their wives, their husbands, their boyfriends, their daughters for an opinion. And so that means to them, like, this is all super subjective. And maybe it is to a degree, but at least trust somebody who's been trained to do this, who spent years, if not decades, fine tuning their craft 
and developing an eye towards the design. And this is the same kind of person who walks into the store to buy a generic product or a knockoff thing. And yet they're approaching you. So they, they don't have a sense of quality and craftsmanship and they don't seek to have the best. So the opposite of that person is what I would consider a discerning entrepreneur, somebody who has really high level taste, who is seeking out other people who want the same kinds of things. And that's why it, it, the, the, there's a, a, like a statement like uh, the best work with the best, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so it's hard to get really great work done with somebody who is just seeking something else. They're seeking control, convenience, or some other metric that is important to them. And so those bad clients tend to devalue the work that you do because anybody can do it and everybody's opinion matters. And so they'll push you down on price. They'll make you feel inferior and it's easy to prey on the insecurities of creative people because we're so other seeking in terms of validation and approval that the slightest little phrase worded a certain way will send you off the deep end. It'll make you do things you would never do in any other aspect in your life. Mm-hmm. And that phrase is this, is the work you've done is underwhelming. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, I'm not offended by this work, but I was hoping for more. It's just something to that phrase is a total backhanded slap. Yep. And then that attacks your ego. It, it undermines your value, your whole existence. And then you go back doing 35 comps of a design instead of two that you promised. Right. And that's the thing that we all need to change our mentality, our belief in self to have that really true North star or that compass that always guides us through the dark of the night to say that, you know what, that's okay that you have that opinion. And that's what that is. I've done the work that I need to do. Obviously this is not a good fit for us. Why don't we part amicably and I will recommend you to somebody else that I think will do exactly what you want. Mm -hmm. Bad clients are the kinds of clients that are micromanagers. They want to not only tell you the goal, but they want to tell you how to get there. Okay. So my, my opinion is this, you can tell me one of the two, but you can't tell me both. Tell me how to do it (laughs) and I'll do it. Or tell me where you want to go and then I'll figure it out. Now, the reason why I say that so confidently is because obviously you don't know how to do it. If you did know how to do it, you would have done it. Right. So let's accept that, you know, and I even tell my children as I have two little boys and my oldest boy, he's now 13, but he, you know, when he was younger, he would walk up behind me and say, dad, I don't like that logo or do, can you do this? And I would turn to him. I was like, do you want to tell me how to do it? Or, you know, <laughs> or can we just talk about the goals? Because I can do one of the two. So you obviously don't know how to do it. So let me do my job. And he goes, oh, okay. I get it. <laughs> It's going to be a great future client. <laughs> you know, he's he's a very sh- uh, smart and sharp boy, very attentive to details. And he's going to be on the show pretty soon because I'm going to have him guest crit some work. And I think it'll be hilarious. But the other side of it is really uh, on you, meaning that the client is good. They gave you a really challenging project and you thought you could take it on. And these are some of the most painful projects I've ever been a part of because Sometimes you can bite off more than you can chew and it's really stressful. I like challenges, but when it's a challenge beyond your scope and you're like, wow, how do I do this? I'm out of my league here, all these kinds of things. And it's very, very stressful. And I've had a couple of situations, one of which was, I won't name the client, but it was a very challenging particle simulation job, very complicated math and things that we just don't do. A lot of coding and thinking through things with physics, you know? 
And we had a whole team of people that were quote unquote experts and the team was not hitting it. We were missing our deadlines. The work was subpar. As soon as the client made one comment, it's like it would take us days to iterate on that idea and not hours, which we were used to doing. Mm-hmm. And that, one's, that was one of those jobs where we're slamming our head against the wall thinking, oh my gosh, if we can give the money back, we would because we don't know what to do. And the, our only saving grace was to dig into our network of people that we know and a friend of a friend appeared. And that person worked on feature films like, um, the, what is it called? That One of those Roland Emmerich disaster movies, you know, where it's the end of days, uh, <laughs> yeah. where buildings are falling apart and the oceans are rising and to sweep in New York or whatever. Well, he's a particle specialist. I think I've seen that movie. Right? And, uh, and he's a particle specialist and we luckily found him and he came in and started doing what looked to me like magic in hours that our entire team couldn't do in days. Mm. And so those are very stressful challenges. Now, the good news is this, if, uh, is your audience mostly design based like print or motion or who, who are they? Yeah, I think we've got a mix of, uh, of designers who, who listen to this and probably a fair number of marketing folks as well. Okay, great. So let's just say you're in the design space in terms of print design, whatever form that takes, a logo, identity design, collateral, that kind of stuff. Well, the world of known knowns or known unknowns, are, it's pretty small. It's like, it's very hard for you to get into a job where you're like, oh my God, I don't know what kind of paper to choose. Hmm, right. So you're pretty safe there. Now, you, where it can go wrong for you is say that you're in charge of printing and you, you pick a discount printer and not the one that you should have. And they're, you know, cause you don't know how to operate a press. And if it doesn't, doesn't come out right or their standards of quality are not there and they're laying down too much ink on one thing, then that's a problem for you. So things that are out of your control tend to be very, very stressful. And that's where it's good for you. At least, at least if you're in your earlier part of your career to go ahead and pay a little bit more for a vendor than you normally would, just so you can work with the best and you can learn along the way. You can say, you know what, when this is on press, I'd love to get an education about how you do what you do and take me through your process because I want to learn while I'm doing this job with you. When it comes into like motion design work and in some marketing stuff, uh, okay, so the marketing world in terms of social media stuff, it's still the wild, wild west, right? Lots of tools are popping up. Standards are changing. Algorithms are changing. Facebook is changing almost on a daily basis now. They're making tweaks all the time. And so the hard and fast rules aren't, there because they're being rewritten on a daily basis. So I think at the end of the day, the challenges are really to get results for your client. And you can luckily try and experiment and get data on whether or not your things are working or not. So that's a, that's a great way to work. And I'm really excited about what's happening in terms of digital marketing. So maybe shifting again a little bit, I'm curious, you know, for me in particular, I spent the first several years of, of my business focused like 120% on that to the um, detriment of just about everything else. So I'm, uh, you know, today I'm focused on lots of other things outside of the office, but, but I'm curious, um, maybe what things you do to find inspiration or, or what things you find maybe trying to make time for outside of, outside of work. Hmm. Where do I find inspiration? I find inspiration, you know, the few hours that I'm actually not thinking about work um, when I'm outside in the real world. I'm an active seeker of information. So I'm a life learner and I tend to be very um, 
how should I say, like process oriented. So if I watch a great film or read a book, I'm always thinking and plugging it back into like, how did they come up with this idea? What decisions did they make? And trying to put myself in the shoes of the creative people behind the things that I see. It could be a simple uh, design for a t-shirt or a shoe or something like that. And I'm studying like the materials they're using, the design decisions they're making. I'm always breaking things down. That's my job essentially to break down a complex problem into smaller bite-sized pieces, to break down why a design doesn't work, or to look at a timeline and break that thing down. And that's what I use to kind of feed myself. Now, when it comes to inspiration, I don't look too much anymore in the world of design or the things that I'm doing as a profession. I've been doing this for 22 years. I'm not saying I've seen it all, but at some point, this all becomes very... Um, like cyclical in terms of the work that you're seeing mm -hmm. yeah. derivative. And that's why I stay out of those places. Now, the good news is the young people that work at our office, they're the new graduates, they're always on the blogs and Pinterest and looking at these things. And that's great because they're doing that work for me. And so sometimes I'll walk by and I'll see something. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Can you send me that link? That's an artist I've not seen before. And let me just bookmark that. But where I really truly draw inspiration from is now through a couple different sources. One is reading books on theory, philosophy, mm -hmm. uh, business uh, philosophy, those kinds of things. And then watching videos on YouTube, not how-to videos, but I'm just looking at people like Simon Sinek and how he talks about things and how he moves his hands, his body language and the pauses and how he's able to get a reaction from the audience. So I'm thinking about things on a different level than I used to. Because now I'm in that space where I'm, I'm paid to think and to write and to articulate and share information. So I want to learn from those people. What would you say that you are most obsessed with right now? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm probably most obsessed with our audience and our community. I spend probably too much time reading through the comments, replying. And each comment or idea that is spawned on the site builds 10 more ideas. And so it's hard for me to contain. And you can't see my desk right now, but it's literally it has stacks of notes and I keep a little small notepad. It's probably about uh, three by five inches. And if I'm talking to somebody or if I read something, I'm writing notes down and I'm not talking about like writing notes, like I'm going to take a test, but writing notes, like this gave me an idea, a spark for something. Let me draw a diagram. And then it's a question of how fast can I process a sketch or an idea, a statement, a quote, a phrase, some tool I'm thinking about into something that can be shared with other people. So I'll give you an example. I, I don't remember why I was searching for Massimo Vignelli. I just can't remember. But Massimo Vignelli is a designer that I'm aware of, but it really didn't look that much into. Mm -hmm. And then I'm on Wikipedia, I'm on quotes, uh, like quotable quotes or something, and I find the uh, Massimo Vignelli canon, like these beliefs that he has. Oh man, that thing's awesome. Okay. And I'm starting to read through these things. And I'm like, wow. And this is how stupid I am. God, I feel the same way. He's talking about like logic and how design should be timeless. And it's, it's supposed to be this rigorous process. And I feel like, damn, this is what I believe. Okay, great. I'm going to dig deeper into this. So now, no, no, most normal people would do that and just, it would evaporate, right? But I'm not a normal person because I'm a nut job. I'm going to admit that. That's fine. So I take the ones that I thought were best and I start to build up a poster comp thing, you know, because I'm going to post this and share. And so I want to turn each one of these 
ideas, these quotes, if you will, mm-hmm. into a design poster. And I'm going to try to do justice to the Vignelli uh, legacy here. So I'm going to use, of course, Helvetica Bold, and mm-hmm. it's going to be minimal in colors, white, black, and red. So I started designing these posters, and one after another. And before I know it, I have 15 done. So I start sharing that with the world, and they're like, wow, this is amazing. So like, look, I discovered something. I'm late to the game, and I'm going to share it with you. And the only thing I did different was I put it into a layout because whatever HTML thing displayed it horribly. Mm-hmm. And then I share it and it gets shared and people love it. And then there's this one thing that Massimo said, which is it's a designer's duty to fight against ugliness. Okay. Yeah. So I put that out there. And he said, that's the, our battle every day. And ugliness comes in many forms, not just aesthetics, but like an ugly work process or a product or just the nature of people or whatever it is. You know, we can all say that we should fight against uh, injustice and ugliness. That's cool. But some people responded on, on our page and said, ugliness, I don't like that word. It's just, what do you mean ugly? Like, well, ugly to who? And what standards are you using? Mm-hmm. So this is one of the things that I practice. It's like social listening. So I hear that. I say, oh, okay. I thought it was kind of clear. It made sense to me, but I'm already drinking the Kool-Aid with Massimo, right? So I made an ugliness graph to help people understand when you look at something, <laughs> To me, at least, it doesn't have to be as objective or subjective as you think. So I started doing things like, um, is this disposable or is this timeless? Is this clear or is this confusing? So I would create a graph on X, Y, and the X was always the bad thing that you don't want. And the Y is the thing that you desire. And if you looked at that graph as a, a value scale of one to 10, one being the worst and 10 being the most amazing thing ever, I came up with like eight attributes or so. And that way you can look at your own design and say, oh, I'm a three here, a seven there, mm-hmm. a fifth, you know, whatever it is. And now you can help understand if it's ugly or not. Mm. And that's getting some traction right now. I just put it out there. And so it's going through a couple of uh, iterations of refinement, but I might turn that into a poster. And this is just to help people understand and grade their own work or the work of others so that they can understand what they like and what they don't like. And it's completely subjective still, but it's a little less subjective. Yeah, I think the other word that I had heard him use is is vulgarity, that he's uh, battling vulgarity. And, and he meant that in terms of of the ugliness or the, you know, the the harsh or the trendy or the the thing that's disposable. And for anybody listening who's not seen this before, is not familiar with this work, of course, track down Chris's posters and just Google the, the Mosmos Canon and I'm sure you'll, you'll find that on the interwebs. There's a, there's a PDF floating around somewhere. Yeah. And the only reason why I made these posters is because I went on and looked for posters and they weren't designed that well. And I'm a little bit of a design type snob here. So I was like, Oh, how could you do that? Like, why did you design it that way? You know, this should be, stripped of gimmicks and things and it should be designed really clean and minimal and the spacing has to be right and why'd you use 14 different point sizes that confuses me <laughs> so that's why i almost felt like a burden like i i have to i can't put up on a poster about fighting ugliness and use somebody's ugly design to say that it just felt wrong <laughs> right. what would you define as one of your proudest professional moments mm, okay 
proudest? It's always the most questions that, you know, stop me in my tracks. Well, let's say subtract the est. Tell us about a very proud professional moment. I think there's a couple of points in my career where I notice something that's unique. And what I'm looking for here is when my team seems to love the project more than me. Mm. And that doesn't happen that often. And when it does, first of all, I'm just blown away by it. But then second of all, I'm trying to manage their passion and their energy and say, like, let's not kill ourselves right now. Mm -hmm. Because I can see where that's going. So the, the project I'm thinking of is for a music video for the Ravenettes. And it was a collaboration between the Gap, the, the, the clothing retailer, and a bunch of different artists. And they were trying to show the sound of color as a spring campaign, I think. And I was lucky enough that the agency that hired us allowed me to choose which color I wanted. So they had yellow, red, blue, green, and black. I said, black and white? Oh, I'm all in on black and white. Don't even think about that. And so we started to work on this thing and uh, develop a concept around light and shadow. The absence of light is shadow. And so playing around with polarities of good and evil, hero and, and, and uh, villain, predator and prey. So I wrote this little treatment and I used shadow puppets, which I'd never done before. And yeah, cool. we hired a puppet troupe to do it. And my team was just like working on this. And this was uh, many years ago. And the team I was working on this, you know, it would be like 10, 11 o'clock at night and they just wouldn't go home. Because I was there, I was like, I feel bad as a leader to just go home and leave you guys here. So at a certain point, I said, you know, we're going to hit that moment. And these kind of projects, like music videos, always hit that moment where you're in that final stretch, the last week, if you will. And I know from experience, it's going to take everything for us to get across the finish line because now all the details matter. So this is one of those moments where I'm like sitting there, the 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 proud father of this team saying, guys, look, I appreciate it, but I'm going to have to send you home. I don't want you to work on this anymore. Okay. Go get some sleep because it will happen. I'm just saying like, we're, we're peaking too early here, you guys, because I want a bunch of zombies here later. And that's when I just know that the team loves the project. They love the creativity behind it. And this is no longer about commerce or money. This is really about art, love, and passion. And those moments don't happen that often where you have to tell people to go home. And it's not because you're trying to save money because nobody's trying to make any more money on this thing. I think the companion to that, like that's a, that's an awesome thing, but the, the one that, that gets me or has gotten me a couple of times frequently is when the team comes back to me and tells me how much they enjoy the client and the, the contacts in particular and how, how they feel respected working with, with that particular client. So I think that's also a, Maybe, maybe similar, but related thing. Yeah. You know, I, and I always kind of always think about this, right? When a client trusts you explicitly to do whatever it is you want, that's a heavy burden to carry. It really is. Because most clients say it's got to be this thing and they, they put all these parameters on you. So, you know, you have to stay within the guidelines, right? But when a client like the artist uh, from the Ravenettes, he was like, no, okay, that's cool. And they gave us no feedback. Mm -hmm. So you walk away thinking, you know, usually 
and I'm not a, this kind of person. I don't have this kind of mentality. But you know, when a project doesn't go well, you're like, well, they effed it up. They wanted this, or the logo is horrible. And it's like the best that we can do, or the time, or whatever. This is one of those moments where if this project fails. Well, who you got to blame? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you got to blame yourself, right? And so it's like, you know, I know a lot of designers are listening to this and thinking, what? I've always wanted a client to let me do whatever it is that I want. And when you get it, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's a heavy responsibility. It's almost like the client saying, you know, I have a certain amount of money in the cash register. Uh, whatever you think this job costs, you just go help yourself to it. I totally trust you. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a whole different thing than saying, hey, can you bid this? And it's going to be triple bidded and this is how it's going to work. And then my general philosophy there is like, I'm going to try and bid this as much as, as high as possible with as much money as possible until the point in which you think it's almost unreasonable, but not to that point. Right. Because we're going to play this game, right? Because I'm going to go here and you're going to take me there and somewhere in the middle we'll meet and we'll be happy. <laughs> right. But when a client just says, oh, you know, whatever it takes, that's a big responsibility too. Yeah, exactly. Because then you're thinking, you know, I want to be fair to them and I want to be fair to us. And you're coming at the place where I think you've got the right, maybe the right heart around how to do that. Where, like you said, when you feel like, you know, you thought you had this relationship and now it becomes competitive or, you know, just extra red tape and extra steps. Like you guys want to work with us or you want to work with somebody else? Let's just be real about it. Right. Now I can give one more example to your audience in case they're still scratching head. Like I've never had a client say you can do for whatever amount of money or do whatever you want. <laughs> right. Okay. I understand that we live in the real world, but here's what I can say. I remember as a kid, if I did something wrong, like my dad, uh, he, there was always a threat of impending violence. Like I'm a, I'm a pre first generation, I'm a first generation immigrant, right? So in, in the old country, I mean, you got whooped like you can't believe. And there was always that threat. Like you do something wrong and the belt is coming or the broomstick, something horrible is coming. But my dad never hit us. There was a threat. So when we did something wrong, he would totally like do a mind thing on you, you know? And he was like, you know, I want you to figure out what the appropriate punishment is for this. Mm. And that's the same thing. It's like, well, if I say, well, a uh, little slap on the wrist is, and then my dad will look at me and think, are you crazy? Now I'm going to bring the hammer down on you. <laughs> so you're trying to find like what is reasonable and it makes you really introspective. And so as a young person, that didn't make any sense to me. I was angry. I'm like, just hit me or just do something and let me get out with my life. Right. Right. But now I have to sit here and think and devise my own punishment. So it really made me think about what I did, what I did wrong. And then that was already the punishment to begin with. And I didn't know it at that time, but that was pretty ingenious. Yeah. That's, uh, that's like the, uh, Jedi mind tricks for parenting. Mm -hmm. I use it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I leverage that enough. <laughs> Well, sometimes it works. I do I always mean, do the opening bid for bedtime, like at eight o'clock. One of them in bed by eight thirty, but at eight, I'm like, maybe you should go get your PJs on. I mean, one of my sons, he'll be like, "Oh, you just let us off with a warning." I'm like, no, that's not the answer. <laughs> Master negotiator in the making. <laughs> I think most kids are actually quite skilled in negotiation. It's as we get older, we get uh, yes, they are more intimidated by it. Yeah. Well, I would love to um, keep chatting because this has been infinitely interesting. I'm actually very curious to unpack more of the products, but if you're open to this, I think we should do that as a as an episode too. Maybe get that scheduled for a little later in the season. 
Sure, I'd be happy to. And maybe in the meantime, maybe other questions will pop up from your audience and I'd be happy to do that. Well, that's uh, I'm I'm very transparent. So if you want to know anything about my finances, my personal life, my business, my struggles, my victories, whatever, I'm okay to talk about it all. I wasn't always this way, but I am this way now. I think that's a great segue. So maybe let our audience know where they can track you down online and where kind of each of these different content areas live and the best way to you know, if they want to chat and ask you some of those seemingly personal questions, uh, where would be the right venue for that? All right. Like I'm almost literally like everywhere and you can find me just about any social platform that exists. So I'm on Twitter and on Instagram and my name is at the Chris Doe and it's spelled D-O, normal spelling of Chris. And that's where you can find me. And you can also have more of a conversation with me on Facebook. I have multiple Facebook pages. So there's me as the human being. And then there's Chris Doe Business Designer. There's a page just for all the business advice that I give. There's this group that I've started. It's called the Future Feedback. And this is where designers, uh, mostly traditional like identity designers are in there. And I'm sharing history, design stuff. I'm giving the exercise and assignments. So if that appeals to you, look out for the future feedback group. And Mm. on Facebook, I have another page. It's called the future and you guys can find it there. The future is here. And uh, this is where we collect all our podcasts, videos, and things that inspire us. And you can check that out too. That's awesome. Well, Chris, it's been a blast chatting with you and uh, I look forward to catching up with you passively through uh, listening to future episodes of the future. But uh, thank you for joining us and thank you for being obsessed with design. All right, guys, that's episode number 72 in the books. For all of today's show notes, please head over to obsessedshow.com. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon. Check us out online. It's milesherndon.com. Thanks again for listening to season two. If you haven't listened to some of our earlier episodes, be sure you're subscribed on iTunes and go back to those early episodes. There are some true gems in there with some designers you may know and lots that you may not, but I hope you can learn a little bit of something from each and every episode. So head over to iTunes, please subscribe, and we'd love a rating or review to help other people find the show. Our show is edited by Gen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Head over to BrassyBroad.com to learn more about the services she has to offer. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.